Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Good morning, Inspire Church family, friends, those of you joining us for the very first time. My name is Philip. I'm one of the pastors at Inspire Church. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Man, I was just thinking about it. It's, we're going into nine weeks of shelter in place, and I miss my Inspire family so much. Uh, in fact, we sent out an update earlier this week via our social media, but I wanted to share with you just really briefly. I know things are starting to shift and change in California, and I just want to let you know, for those of you that are wondering uh, what Inspire Church plans to do, we're going to keep you updated, but for now, we're going to move at the pace of our local and state officials, and so when we get a green light to open, uh, we will prepare, and we will let you know. As for now, we're going to just continue to wait until we get the all clear from state and local officials. So I just wanted to take a moment to share that with you just in case you missed our update. Um, you know, being sheltered in place for so long, I've had to actually cut my own hair. In fact, the other day I cut it and it's kind of a bowl cut. There's no fade, anything to that. Gilbert, if you're watching, my barber, I miss you so much. But until then, it's quarantine cuts all day long. I also got to give out a shout out to Brian Hanna who gave me this amazing shirt. I told him I'd wear it on Sunday. That's Michael Jordan, y'all, faith over fear. Um, and just an amazing shirt that I've been wearing all week, but couldn't wait to share with you guys today. Um, if you were with us last week, Pastor Roger did an amazing job finishing Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, Pastor Roger talked about uh, the inside values of the people of God. And, and what he meant by the inside values of the people of God, it's the way that the people of God uh, um, interact uh, towards one another. But then he also talked about the outside vigor of the people of God. And what the outside vigor of the people of God is the, the demonstration, the characteristics the people of God demonstrate to those that are outside of the church. Now today in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul is going to continue to discuss our responsibility as the people of God to the outside of the world, specifically as good citizens of the state and loving neighbors in our communities. Now, I just want to give you a little historical context. Um, as Paul is writing this particular portion of the letter, um, I want to give you some context so you can understand where he's coming from. You see, during that time, the Christian church was actually looked at suspiciously by Roman citizens and the Roman government. And I'll tell you why. Number one, uh, uh, the Christian church, according to the Romans, actually worshiped a criminal. What do I mean by that? You have to remember, Jesus Christ was crucified as a form of capital punishment under the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And so Roman citizens and the Roman government looked at Christians as followers of a criminal. Now, another reason why uh, Romans were suspicious of Christians was because Christians were associated with Jews. And the Jews throughout the Roman Empire were known as notoriously bad citizens. Let me explain why. You see, the Jews had their own sets of laws. 
They claimed exemption from taxes. They claimed exemption from military service. They also uh, would not work on the Sabbath. Now, uh, if you've ever been on a team, you know how frustrating it is if one member of the team doesn't do their job and, and you not only have to do your job, but you have to pick up the weight of the member who's not doing their job. Well, in the same way, the Roman citizens and the Roman government looked suspiciously at Jews. But because the Jews and the Christians... Uh, uh, the origin of Christianity came from Judaism. Uh, the Roman citizens and the Roman government um, uh, assumed that they were affiliated with one another. And so therefore, Christians were looked at suspiciously as well. So the motivation behind Paul writing chapter 13 is the credibility of the Christian gospel witness to a suspicious world. And that credibility of their witness depended upon, now check this out, Christians becoming good citizens in the state and loving neighbors in their communities. You see, for Paul, this issue was still very much about the success of the gospel. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to break down what it means to be a good citizen of the state. And we're going to break down what it means to be a loving neighbor to our community in order that our gospel witness may have credibility and weight with those around us. Now, before we jump in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for Romans, uh, the application of the gospel in our daily lives. And I pray that this word, Lord, would touch us on a deep level. Lord, it would transform the way we interact, not just with one another in the church, but how we interact with the world around us. And Lord, we give you all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to Romans chapter 13. And I'm going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to first read verses 1 through 7. Now, in Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul is going to describe what a gospel-centered citizen looks like. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7 reads like this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's minister, God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I want to pause right there. As you can see, this section of scripture 
can become controversial, especially in our current time. But there are three observations that will help us better understand what a gospel-centered citizen to the state looks like. Observation number one. If you notice, the Bible doesn't approve of any form of government. As a result, we don't get to pick and choose according to our political preferences. Notice, Paul doesn't say, obey only if a Democrat is in office, obey only if a Republican is in office. He, Paul doesn't say, pay taxes only to a Democratic state or a socialistic state. Rather, Paul tells all Christians everywhere to submit no matter what form of government you are currently under. Why? Because according to the Apostle Paul, all government is ordained by God. Now, this is really key. So it's not the form of government that we ultimately trust and honor, but it's God's providential sovereignty behind establishing that government for his glory. I want you to think about this. Pharaoh, in his stubbornness, was instituted by God to demonstrate God's power. Assyria, by taking Israel captive, was instituted by God to demonstrate God's discipline. Pilate, in crucifying Jesus, was instituted by God to demonstrate God's love to the world. You see, as Christian citizens, we rest in this. Even though history has had its share of tyrants, God has used these rulers for the building up of his people, the accomplishing of his purposes, and the demonstration of his glory. God is in control. Observation number two. This is important. According to the Apostle Paul, the primary purpose of government, are you ready, is to restrain evil and protect its citizens. Let me say that again. According to the Apostle Paul, the primary purpose of all government is to restrain evil and protect its citizens. You see, when government functions in that way, Paul then calls them ministers and servants of God. And get this, Paul also calls them avengers. That was so amazing. As Christian citizens, it's important to distinguish between, ready, the ministry of the church and the ministry of the state. So the state. I want to say that again. It's important as, as Christians to be able to distinguish between the ministry of the church and the ministry of the state. Let me explain. The church is the ministry of God to promote good by love and is the channel of God's grace. The state is the ministry of God to restrain evil by force and is the channel of God's wrath. Therefore, it would be wrong for the church to punish using force and it would be wrong for the state to use force for the gospel. When governments operate in this fundamental way, they are operating, get this, as an extension of God's justice. And as Christians, we're called to submit to that and not resist it. Finally, and maybe most importantly, as you're sitting there, observation number three, is there ever a time 
when a Christian can resist governmental authorities. Whether it's racial inequality, systemic injustice, or overreach during a pandemic, uh, is there ever a time that Christians can resist? Listen closely. Yes, we can disagree on policies and work to change them. Yes, we can even practice civil disobedience when governments permit what God has forbidden or forbid what God has permitted. Think about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus refusing to kill the babies according to Pharaoh's mandates. Think about the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to bow down and worship an idol. Think about Peter in Acts refusing to bow to the government of man and saying he will continue to preach Jesus. Yes, we can civilly disobey when the government permits what God forbids or forbids what God permits. And yes, there's even a time for war when a government becomes so egregiously evil that it needs to be stopped. But before you get all militant, consider the historical context of this letter. Consider the moment in which Paul is penning this down. Paul writes, Roman Christians, submit to governing authorities. And he writes it to a church that is in the epicenter of persecution, right? In fact, in Rome during this time, there's an emperor named Nero. And you know what Nero would do? He would catch Christians. He would burn them alive. Then he would post them around the city as tortures. As Pastor Roger pointed out in chapter 12 of Romans, what marks a believer and empowers the potency of their gospel witness is the way they endure suffering when persecuted by their enemies. Now I want to take a step back and maybe go on a little bit of a discipleship detour I want to caution you as you're sitting there against three extremes when it comes to the government. The first extreme that I've seen in my life is what I call escapism. I've seen those that desire to escape. What do I mean by that? There was once a church that I knew of that according to prophecy, while they were reading scripture, They sold everything. They left the city. They moved to a remote mountain. They started to grow their own food and they determined to escape society and wait until Jesus came. Everything outside of them was evil. Now, I want you to know that this felt more like a cult than it felt like being salt and light. As the people of God, no matter how bad it gets, we are called to be salt and light, not to be escapists. Now, the second extreme that I've seen is that others look to, I gotta pause real quick. This is my put on your seatbelt moment because I see this all the time. The second extreme is when others look to or talk about elected officials like they are political messiahs will even divide as Christians as if 
president and party is greater than Christ in church. Let me say that again. We even will divide as Christians as if president and party is greater and more significant than Christ and his church. We will disagree. Absolutely, we will disagree. But we cannot place our ultimate hope and our ultimate trust in anyone else other than Jesus Christ. And we must unify around that commonality and allow it to humble us in our opinions. Finally, the third extreme that I've seen is not just the extreme of escapism, not just the extreme of political messiahs, but conspiracy theorists. And I gotta tell you, as a pastor, I've been very frustrated lately. And I want to determine the difference between discipling you and making sure that my zeal is holy before the Lord. But I do wanna say this, extremism is everywhere, but nowhere is it more prevalent than on the internet. Add to that political polarization. I believe in our history in America, we are in one of the most polarizing political moments of all time. Add a little political polarization as well as the conditions of a global pandemic. And get this, conditions become perfect for many Christians to expose their gullibility. Christians, please, if you're out there and listening to me, please hear and heed my voice. Are you ready? Number one, check your sources before you believe and share anything. Remember, bearing false witness doesn't just ruin your gospel credibility, but it is also a sin before God. Lastly, if you must report, report the gospel and not the latest conspiracy theories cooked up by satire sites, anarchists, white nationalists, and internet trolls. I was thinking about the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, he was getting ready to prophesy the gospel, the good news of a Messiah and what that Messiah would come to do for us, a suffering servant who would die on our behalf. And before he prophesied that, you know what he said? He said, who will believe our report? In other words, who will trust the credibility of our witness? Listen, the more we perpetuate fake news, conspiracy theories, the less people will believe the good news of the gospel that comes out of our mouth. Paul moves on from describing a gospel-centered citizen to now describing a gospel-centered neighbor in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Let's read that together. Verse 8 says this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For those 
who love one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now watch. While Christian citizenship is grounded in submission to governing authorities, Christian neighboring is grounded in love for one another and love for our community. And Paul calls on Christians, ready to express neighborly love in this very practical, down-to-earth way. Are you ready? Paul says, Christians everywhere, this is how you express your love to your neighbors. He says this, pay back all that you owe. Pay back all that you owe. What do you mean by that, the Apostle Paul? How does that an expression of love? Well, let me explain. Number one. If you want to be known as a loving neighbor with credibility in your community, write this down. Be reliable. I'm going to say that again. If you want to be known as a loving neighbor with credibility in your community, be reliable. What do I mean by that? Pay off your debts. Be good for it. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. I know business owners who have extended deadlines, provided extra services, and even gave out loans, are you ready? To Christians thinking that their Christianity could be trusted only to be taken advantage of and never paid back. I also know Christians who've hired other Christians to do jobs like painting and plumbing only to realize that that job would take longer than expected. It would cost, it would be way more expensive and it would either be half done or done terribly. And you wanna know what the sad part about all of this is? I've walked in homes and the individual is talking about their home and that job, that terrible job that that person did actually becomes a memorial. And they kind of look at it and you can tell their face gets all crunched up. I've seen this before. This is a personal experience to say, yeah, that plumbing job right there, that bathroom, that tile install, uh, a friend from church did that. He did a terrible job. He never finished. Not only did I pay him, but I had to pay someone else to come and fix what he did. And probably one of the saddest stories that have forever marked me I know someone personally who rented out their home to a pastor. And this pastor was on hard times and so they even gave them a discount. But here's what happened. This pastor would not only routinely dodge paying rent and not answer their phone calls, but after two years, when the pastor finally moved out, the pastor and her family left their home a mess. That home was tore up. There was pee on the carpets from the animals. There was holes in the walls. And I remember after hearing this, I told my wife, Jamila, for the rest of our lives, we are gonna pay on time and we are gonna exceed above and beyond expectation. Why? Because as a loving neighbor, not wanting to destroy the gospel credibility of my life, 
I want to make sure that I pay to all what I owe. Number two, another practical way in which Paul is calling us to be loving neighbors. He says, if you want to be known as a loving neighbor with credibility in your community, ready? He says, if you're going to owe anything, owe everyone love. And I love this. This is called the gospel debt. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you owe a gospel debt to everyone you meet. It's a debt that we'll always owe as followers of Christ and we'll never be able to pay back. The gospel debt is the debt of love that we owe our neighbors. And again, I'm going to get really practical so you can understand. I remember I used to work for a restaurant in Union City. And none of the servers wanted to work on Sunday afternoons. Like that was the big thing in the restaurant. We all gave our shifts away. Nobody wanted to work on Sunday afternoons. And do you want to know why? Because the reputation of the Christians coming out of church was that they were rude, they were messy, and they were terrible tippers. Now, you may be sitting back watching this thinking, you know what, how dare you guys say that about people of God. But if you're going to be a loving neighbor, you owe everyone love. Your reputation as a credible gospel witness to an onlooking world and community depends on you showing love. And it was sad for there to be a reputation in that restaurant not to work on Sunday afternoons because the church folk were the messiest, the rudest, and the worst tippers. But on the other hand, I thank God. I thank God because I've been mentored by good, integrous Christian men. Christian men like my own father who always taught me whenever I borrow a car to make sure that when I give it back, the tank is filled. Good Christian men like Jeffrey Bogus' father, Jeff Bogus Sr., who when I would come over the house and hang out for a while, I'd come outside and every time he would secretly wash my car. Now these are little things, things that, oh, that you may not think are, are huge, but these are integrous men that recognize as men of God, they owed love everywhere that they went. These were men who walked around with the mentality that as followers of Christ, they owed everyone love. As a result, they found ways to pay love forward all the time and their reputation preceded them. This is not just the call of disciples individually, but this is also a call to the church organizationally. And I want to take a moment just to brag on Inspire Church. I love you guys. Thank you so much for not just being worried about each other, but also being worried about the community. I started off this message by saying it's been about eight to nine weeks since we've had this shelter in place. And when we first went into shelter in place, we began to pray as a leadership team how we could care internally for our church, how, how those that were attending Inspire, how we could reach out, how we can get them in groups and begin to love and disciple them in this time. But we didn't just stop there. We also began to discuss how we could love our community in this time. 
So for the past five weeks, crews of volunteers have been from Inspire, have been serving essential workers at the UC Fire Department, St. Rose Hospital, Kaiser Hospital. In fact, we've fed over 500 people, giving them Motivate Coffee, serving them donuts. We even had shout out to Mad Creations on Taco Tuesday, Feed the Fire Department. And somebody might ask, well, why do you do that? Why, why would you spend money like that during a time when you should be saving money? Now, I understand there is a wise way to move forward in this pandemic. But one of the things we do not want this pandemic to do is to stop our generosity. We will never stop owing the community love as good neighbors. I love this testimony. Christopher Gonzalez was sharing with me during one of his visits serving Uh, individuals from the Kaiser, um, a lady walked up to him and said, thank you for recognizing us. She continued, most of the time we're forgotten or unacknowledged. This is the first time anyone has recognized us and it feels so good to be seen. And as she said that, she had tears in her eyes. Why do we do this? Why do I say this? I don't say this to brag, even though I want to brag on our people a little bit. But the greater reason, the greater purpose is that not just as individuals, but as church organizations, we are to show love to our community. Because as a gospel-centered church, we're called to show our community love. And in doing this, guess what? Christ gets all the glory. Finally, At the end of chapter 13, Paul kind of switches gears a little bit and he calls the body of Christ to an urgent call of action. I'm gonna read verses 11 through 14 and it reads like this. Besides this, in other words, besides everything I just said to you, know the time that the hour has come for you, here it is, to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk Properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, there is a difference, are you ready, between telling the time and discerning the time. Let me say that again. There is a difference between telling the time and discerning the time. You see, the hour Paul is referring to is not the kind that you can read on a clock, but it's a season of signs that indicate that the imminent return of Jesus Christ is sooner than you think. And I love what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. We have too many weathermen in the church. What do I mean by that? Jesus said this, hypocrites you can predict the weather based upon the behavioral patterns of the wind and the sky but you're too spiritually dense to discern the seasons and signs of the present time 
No wonder why we have so many professing Christians leading lives of secret sin. We have no holy urgency because we think we have all the time in the world. So when we see Paul using words like sleep, night, darkness, and fleshly desires. These are all metaphors for those who are already living morally careless lives and even Christians who are living double lives. Paul calls us to put off sexual sin, pornography, adultery, homosexuality, fornication. Jesus is coming soon. Paul says to put off drunkenness, Reckless partying. The word used for sensuality refers to those who openly, shamefully do things for other people to see because Jesus is coming soon. Paul says, stop your bickering. Stop your infighting. Stop your competing. Stop your jealousy. Jesus is coming soon. This is Paul's ancient way of saying, ain't nobody got time for that. And Paul tells us, put these things off like dirty clothes. You know how fast some of you change when you're dirty? You know how, how fast some of you run to the shower when you're dirty? Paul says, put these things off as if they are dirty clothes. And he says, but don't just put them off. But he says, then put on Christ. Put on the robes of righteousness. Put on his righteousness. What a fitting exclamation point to all that Paul has been saying. In the past several weeks, he's called us to make several commitments as gospel-centered disciples. Are you ready? A commitment to individual devotion, a commitment to membership of a church, a commitment to the state as citizens, and a commitment to the community as loving neighbors. Paul exhorts us that if there is ever time to start getting serious about these commitments, that time is now because Jesus is coming soon. I want to finish. Some of you out there may have grew up in church. I know I did. And we always used to hear Jesus is coming back soon. All the time. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. There was always a prophetic urgency and, and you had some fear, right? God forbid he comes back and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not in the right place. But here's what happens. Has somebody ever told you something all the time? You got so used to it. It never happened that all of a sudden you just became, uh, you became asleep to it. You, became t- you hear it all the time. It's not happening. All of a sudden it no longer has an impression on you. You see, there's a lot of us saying, well, We've been saying Jesus has been coming back for a long time and he hasn't come back yet. Let me just say this. The idea that Jesus is coming soon is a biblical reality. We are in the last days. And I'm not gonna go off on some weird, trippy conspiracy theory, but let me just say this. When Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, we entered into the last days according to scripture. But here's another thing I want you to know. Whether Jesus comes back in your lifetime or not, We all don't have that long to live. Our life expectancy is short. We are but a vapor. And whether he comes back or whether you die, the time is now to begin to commit to the gospel, commit to the credibility of your witness, to stop playing games, to repent and believe.
And so here's what I want to do as we finish. I want to pray for you right now. If you're sitting at home right now, and this has pierced your soul. Maybe there's a little fear inside of you. Maybe you're used to hearing the love of the gospel, but Jesus is coming back, his pierced fear. I want you to know that's a healthy fear. Allow that fear to drive you towards the love of Christ. And if you need to repent of a double life, if you need to repent of not taking any of these commitments serious, I want to call you to that today. So I want to pray with you. And I want you to put your trust in Jesus Christ. I want you to admit you're a sinner in need of a savior. And I want you to look to what Christ has done on the cross on your behalf. So heavenly father, I just come before you right now. Lord, I feel like today your word became a two-edged sword and it pierced us on many levels, whether it was submission to governmental authorities, whether it was uh, being integrous, loving neighbors, Lord God, whether it was getting our life right and stop playing games, Lord, you pierced us today. So I pray for all of those who've been pierced. Lord, I pray now that their wound, Lord God, would be addressed with the healing balm of the gospel. I pray that they would run to your arms. I pray if there's anybody out there feeling convicted, God, I pray that that conviction wouldn't drive them to fear or anger, but it would drive them to your loving arms because you have died for them on their behalf. So Lord, today we repent. We put our faith in you and we discern the times. Lord, we are in a strange season, but we know that you're coming soon. And so we live with that urgency. And I pray that we would do that, not just individually, but at Inspire Church for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.